All right. If you'll take your Bibles out, please open them once more to the book of Hebrews as we return to Hebrews. We're going to back up just a little bit into chapter 5 for our reading this morning. So if you'll join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. Speaking of Christ, starting in Hebrews chapter 5, starting at verse 7, it says, Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. You've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he's a babe. Solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who, are by, who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Therefore, leaving the discussion of elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of the laying on of hands, of the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and of the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessings from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown towards his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope and to the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace as we begin a very difficult passage of Scripture. I pray, God, that you would grant to us understanding that you would grant to us wisdom, that you would give to us clarity of thought, Father. I pray that where we have error hiding in our thinking, that you would reveal it, expose it, remove it, that you would grant to us the ability to speak truthfully, to take in the truth, to change our thinking where our thinking needs to be changed, and that you would cause us, God, to be conformed to the image of Christ in everything that we do. Lord, we are not so arrogant as to assume that anybody has this 100% right. But we also believe that you have given us your word, that we might grow in grace and learn the truth. 
So let us grow in grace and learn the truth. Teach us to think deeply and well and accurately about your things, and teach us to think about them in a way that touches our lives and transforms us. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. So we're we're coming back to Hebrews, and um, we're picking this passage up. We're going to focus our attention starting at verse 4. And this passage of Scripture is, is very difficult to correctly interpret, very difficult to accurately unpack, very difficult because it seems to imply some things that the rest of Scripture denies. So we need to think about it carefully. We need to think about it intelligently. We need to think about it accurately. So I need you guys to really engage your brains this morning. Um, you, you hear me say things like that a lot, but this time I, I really need you to be with me. I need you to, to help me think with you through this because to get this wrong warps and distorts our faith. So the first law of hermeneutics, and hermeneutics, remember, is the accurate study of Scripture. It's how we think about the Bible. The first law of hermeneutics is context, context, context. You've heard me say this dozens, if not hundreds of times. The second law is closely connected to the first. It is the idea of the analogy of faith. It is the the truth that the complete and entire Scripture is consistent from start to finish. The Scripture teaches us one whole truth about God. Okay, the analogy of faith demands that all of Scripture rests comfortably together, that you don't have any contradiction in its teaching. You don't have anything wherein God says one thing one minute and something else another. So the analogy of faith is the second law of hermeneutics, and out of that grows the third law of hermeneutics, which I term the keyhole law. And the keyhole law is very simply this. Where there is an apparent conflict, which the analogy of faith says cannot exist, where there is an apparent conflict, you use the many clear verses to help you correctly interpret the difficult verses, the few passages that are hard to discern, hard to understand. So we use the many to inform the few. All right? Now I say all of that because this passage is one of the few. <laughs> All right. I say all of that as background to help us understand that as we start to dive into this part of Hebrews, we're going to need to understand what the whole counsel of God is telling us about the perseverance of the saints. Okay, We're going to need to understand what the whole counsel of God is telling us about what is truth. Because... There is no doubt that this is a difficult passage and that more ink has been spilled over the issues that it raises, more arguments have been born, more heresy has erupted than I can possibly fathom, because it touches on what is the crown jewel of the Christian faith, and that is the promise that God keeps his own. Okay? Now, I call it the crown jewel because it is the capstone of a right interpretation of Scripture. It's birthed out of Scripture. It's not something that we can just cling to. And even in places where we talk about the security of the believer, it's often been divorced from the theology that brings it to, to be understood. Okay, 
It's, it's the truth that most Baptists hold to when they abandon everything else that we have taught from the beginning of being Baptist. <laughs> okay? We hold on to the security of the believer because we, we really like this truth. But if you throw away the theology that delivers it to you, then all of a sudden when you come to a passage like Hebrews 6, you feel a little unsettled. You don't quite know, how do I deal with this passage, which seems to imply that people can fall away. Because if we're going to take this passage and understand what it says, we need to wrestle out the fact that it gives us this very stark, very painful, very blunt statement. And that statement is this. If somebody falls away, they can never be restored. Okay? Period. If somebody is capable of losing their salvation, they cannot get it back. So if we're going to believe, as many churches teach, that you can lose your salvation, then we have to carry it all the way to its completion and recognize that when they say, you sinned last night, you lost your salvation, come get saved again, they haven't read their Bible. Because what the Bible teaches is if you lose your salvation, it's gone forever. You will go to hell. Period. And that is a stark, blunt, terrifying thing. If we have abandoned the truth that tells us that we are safe because God holds His own. That not one person that God has chosen from the foundation of eternity will ever be lost. That not one person for whom Christ shed His blood will ever have their sins counted against them. That not one person whom the Spirit has irresistibly drawn, converted their hearts and caused them to cry out for mercy, can ever be counted as guilty for their sins have been atoned for in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. Okay, The whole of what holds us secure is the work of God from start to finish. And if we throw that away, we have no foundation upon which to believe that we are safe and secure. If we try to make it about our choice, well, we chose God, therefore God will never throw us away. You changed your mind once, what's to say you can't change it again? Amen? It doesn't hold. It doesn't hold logically, and it doesn't hold scripturally. Because the scripture is very plain to us that nobody seeks after God. That nobody chooses Him. That nobody desires Him. Right? The scripture is very plain to us that everything that we do is a result of God loving us first. If we love Him at all, it is because He has loved us. Because He has made us alive. The flow of the thought begins all the way back in chapter 5. Which is why we went back to read that. Now, I need to give you some full disclosure this morning. Really, what we're going to do this morning is lay some background. We're going to think about the whole context. We're going to think about the whole flow of it. And we'll start picking this apart and unpacking it a little more fully in the weeks to come. So we're going to be here for a while. And you guys know me and you know the way that I preach and the pace of my preaching. You knew that without me telling you. But I'm going to tell you anyway. We're going to be here for a while. Because there is a whole lot here 
And there's a whole lot here that we need to understand. So the flow of the thought begins all the way back in in chapter 5. And it starts when the writer of Hebrews gives them this little rebuke. And that's the flow that we're going to deal with. And he says, I have a whole lot to tell you about Melchizedek. Right? And he will. He'll start talking about Melchizedek in chapter 7. So we ought to be there in 2025, maybe. (laughs) He's going to talk about Melchizedek. And he's going to get there. And he says, I have a whole lot to tell you about him, but I can't tell you because you have become dull of hearing. There's much that I have to tell you about this man, Melchizedek, about how he relates to and and actually is, spoiler alert, a pre-incarnate Christ. I have much to tell you about Melchizedek, but I can't tell you any of it because you don't know how to listen anymore. You have grown dull of hearing. You you have desired that somebody would tickle your itching ears. You have ceased to be active thinkers and active participants in the Scripture. You have ceased to hear the voice of God. You have grown dull of hearing. He then proceeds to chide them for being foolish and ignorant in their faith. He challenges them about their failure to grow up, and he rebukes them for needing milk and soft food, And accuses them almost, he goes right up to the edge of accuses them of not being believers. He dangles his toes right over the edge of that line, but he doesn't quite, he doesn't quite tell them they're not. Because if we read all the way down to verse 12, so we have the full flow of the thought. And he says what? He says, I'm confident of better things than this concerning you, even though I speak in this fashion. So he tells them up front, I'm giving you guys some warning. I'm giving you guys some caution. I'm giving you guys an alert. Pay attention. Right? But the flow of the thought and what helps us understand how to correctly interpret chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, which are the real problematic verses, what helps us interpret it, what's the first rule of hermeneutics? Context, 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 right? What helps us correctly interpret the problematic verses in the middle is the context of the whole flow of thought. Right? He's rebuking them because they have not grown in grace. He's rebuking them because they have not matured in the faith. He's rebuking them because mentally and spiritually they reached a point in their life where they sort of checked out of their spiritual growth and they went, okay, I'm good. I got all this Bible stuff down. I'm satisfied with who I am. I'm satisfied with how I am. Bring on the cookies. Right? Now let me tell you something very bluntly and tell you something very plainly. And I'll come back to it. But I'm going to just put it out here in the front to start with. If you're still on this rock sucking wind, you are responsible to be growing spiritually. Okay? There is no such thing as retirement from the faith of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how long you've walked with God. It doesn't matter how much you knew or how much you think you know. You are responsible to be growing in faith and growing in grace as long as you are here. That means that every single day you need to approach the word with excitement, which says, God, what new thing are you going to teach me today out of your word? What new truth are you going to press into my heart? How are you going to allow your word to cause me to grow and to bear fruit today? It should be an exciting thing to approach the word of God. And I understand there are times in our lives where we walk in the desert. 
I understand there are times in our lives where the springs of living water that are inside of us, according to Jesus, have dried up a little. Okay? I get that. It happens to all of us. There's nobody exempt from those times in the wilderness. But here's what I know. Remember, I grew up in the desert. When you're in the desert and there's no water, it has a remarkable impact on your body. It's such a profoundly strong impact, we created a word for it. You know what that word is? Thirsty. (laughs) Right? You get thirsty. And if you're finding that you're in a spiritual wilderness, instead of being angry at God about the fact that He's not speaking to you right now and you're not understanding right now and nothing makes sense right now and everything's hard right now, instead of allowing that to become your mindset, understand that the time in the wilderness is designed to make you thirsty. It's designed to make you hunger and thirst for Him. Okay? So even these times wherein we might look dangerously like, man, have I lost my salvation? Have I wandered away? Have I actually done this terrible, terrible thing called the impardonable sin? Whatever in the world that might be, because I talk to people all the time and most of them have no idea. (laughs) If I've done something that will make me lose my salvation... Right? And people worry about this. Well, we're going to spend some time addressing the issue. But I want you to understand that if right now you're in a place where you're fearing this, where you're feeling this, if you belong to God, it is designed by God to make you hunger and thirst for Him. Okay? It is designed by God to make you long for His presence. Because I've spent a lot of thirsty hours in the desert, and I've never met anybody else who spent thirsty hours in the desert who went, no, I'm good, when they're offered water. Right? You want it. You need it. You even be tempted to do bad things for it. (laughs) Be tempted to drink water that you know you shouldn't. You thirst. What the writer of Hebrews is pressing on us is that growth and maturity and faith, they're living things. They're things that are designed and required to mature. They are things that are designed and required to change, to become more. We look at a tree and we see the tree growing. It might grow very slowly, but it grows. It puts on leaves. It puts on flowers. If it's a fruiting tree, it puts on fruit. The tree gets larger in diameter. The bark changes. The color changes. The maturity of the limb changes. We see all of these things, and we know from visceral visceral evidence that there is an alteration going on, and thereby we look at that tree and we say, that tree is alive. Conversely, when a tree fails to bud... And spring is around and all the other trees are leafing out. And all of a sudden, instead of the little tiny limbs and twigs out on the edges, instead of them starting to look like they're alive, all of a sudden you notice they start falling off. You can walk through the woods and if you know what you're looking for, you can see a dead tree even when all the others are dormant. 
Because all the little twigs have fallen off. All the little signs and indications of life have ceased to be. Right? Beloved, there are times where when you are are seeing somebody and you're wondering what's going on, it might be that what you're seeing is evidence that there never really was any life. It might be that what you're seeing is the evidence of death that is being made manifest. Now, over and above, we need to approach this passage saying, there's something here that's hard to get our heads around. And if we're going to get our heads around it, we need to understand that the whole of Scripture is going to inform our understanding of this passage. Okay? I said it before, but I'm going to say it again. God keeps his own safe. This is the testimony of Scripture. Right? So let's look at some Scripture. We're going to understand formatively, by knowing what the truth is, what this passage is not saying. So John chapter 6, starting at verse 35, the first passage we're going to look at. John chapter 6, starting at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me and you do not believe. Verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I should lose nothing and should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me. Everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So here are some things that Jesus is telling us that are going to start shaping our understanding of the rest of Scripture. Jesus is very clear and very plain. And he tells us at the outset here that all that the Father gives to him will come to him. Okay, So we have immediately the promise of Jesus that nobody chosen by the Father will fail to be saved. The theological terminology here is called irresistible grace. And and we also see in it the idea of the eternal election of the believer. That God has chosen a people. And he says, all that the Father gives me, every single one inclusive of them in their entirety, every single person that has been chosen by God, given to Christ, will come. This is an absolute certainty. There is no ground for discussion, no ground for rebuttal. Jesus says all. And of all of those who come to me, I will lose how many? None. I'm not going to lose a one of them because it is the Father's will that I would have them. I will not reject them. So everyone who comes to me, I will not cast out. So no matter how filthy their lives, no matter how unclean they may be, no matter what they've been involved in, I'm not going to reject them. They have been chosen by the Father. They are precious to me. They will come to me and I will not lose them. I have come down to do God's will, 
And then he defines what that will is, and that is that he should lose nothing. And then he defines how we know that somebody has been drawn and called of God and that they believe that Jesus is the Christ. Okay? Everyone who sees Christ and believes in him, these are the ones who are giving evidence that they have been chosen by God, have been drawn to Christ, they believe in him, they are made new. Okay? Now, it's important that we understand that when Jesus says they believe in me, this is not an abstract idea. This is believe in me as I say I am and as I promise you I am. So turn with me to John chapter 10. I'm going to read a little bit longer passage. John chapter 10, starting at verse 1. Most assuredly I say to you that he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. So he's talking about anybody who's trying to get into the presence of God, trying to get into being a person of God, a child of the King, by some means other than Christ. Okay? Jesus says if you're trying to get in some other way, if you're trying to fabricate a religion, trying to invent some other methodology, trying to create some other Jesus, trying to make some rule or law by which you can be saved, you're a thief and a liar, you're a thief and a robber, you're not a part of this. Okay? He who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, he calls out his own sheep by name and he leads them out. When he brings out his own sheep, he goes before him and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration, but they didn't understand the things that he spoke to them. Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Whoever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. So that gives us the definition of those who are coming or trying to come by some other means. They might look like they're trying to do good things. They might look like they're trying to help you out. But if they're offering you anything but Jesus Christ as he is revealed in the scripture, their only aim is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. They are not your friends. Okay? They are not on your side. They are contrary to truth. They are contrary to scripture. And they are contrary to you. Do not follow them. Do not believe them. Do not listen to them. Do not heed them. Do not take in their teaching. Okay? This is the strong cautionary statement of our Lord. The thief does not come to, except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and I am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So specifically, who did Jesus die for? His sheep. Did Jesus die for all men? According to Scripture, the answer is no. He died for his own. This is called particular redemption. This is the idea that God 
is unwilling that anyone for whom Christ died would end up in hell. If God knows who are his own, and God calls who are his own, and Jesus tells us, I lay down my life for the sheep. He does not lay down his life for the goats. He does not lay down his life for those who are not his own. He lays down his life for his own because his death actually, not potentially, but actually paid for sin. Okay? If his death actually paid for sin, and you want to believe that he paid for all sin of all people, then there are people in hell who ought not to be there, for their sin has been paid for. You get it? Okay? Jesus said, I lay down my life for the sheep. Other sheep I have which are not of this fold. That's a strong word of encouragement to us because he's talking about us, right? Remember, he's speaking to Jews. And in the mind of the Jews, there were two kinds of people, us and them, right? In the mind of the Jew, if you were not a Jew, you were them. You were the others. You were the outsiders. You were the dogs, okay? You were the unclean. Remember, we read the passage in Leviticus this morning about all the critters you were and were not to eat? That was the mark of the Gentile. We ate all the unclean things because we like bacon, right? We ate everything they were not supposed to eat because we were not like them. And so what Jesus is telling his disciples here is an outset of the instruction that eventually, guys, this closed party is going to be opened up because I have sheep that I know who are not Jewish. Remember, he lays down his life for the sheep. Other sheep I have who are not of this fold. There are Gentiles who are among the called. That's all the way back in God's promise to Abraham when he said, I will make you a father of many nations. Right? That promise was in the beginning, but the Jews had kind of forgotten it. They'd kind of laid it aside because they'd gotten very comfortable with the idea that they were God's special people and that everybody else was not. Right? So Jesus is telling his disciples, by the way, guys, pay attention. I have other sheep who are not of this fold. I'm going to call them as well. I'm going to bring Gentiles into the party. Also them I must bring, they will hear my voice, there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes my life, but I lay it down myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. This command I have received from my fathers. I'm from my father, excuse me. Therefore there was a division among the Jews because of this saying, and many of them said, He has a demon! He's mad. Why do, you, why do you listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Now, it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long are you going to keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you. And you do not believe me. Because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. 
I and my Father are one. Okay? So what has Jesus just done here? He has laid very serious, very earnest, very concrete claim to the ground that if you are to be saved, it is because He saves you. It is not you. It is not your work. It is not your will. It is not your choice. It is not your personal holiness. It is not your family credentials. It is not anything except Jesus Christ determining to save you because you have been given to Him by the Father since before the foundation of eternity, according to Ephesians chapter 1. Chosen in Christ before the foundation of eternity. Before God ever said, let there be, if you belong to Christ, you were already selected. You were already chosen. Christ had already said, I'm dying for Jean. She's mine. Amen? Amen. And that truth gives us security. Because if I didn't do anything to get it, I can't do anything to lose it. Amen. Amen? So, we're going to come back to plodding on through this, but I, I just want to drop the hook. I want you to pay attention to how this fits together. If then there is a seeming conflict with Hebrews chapter 6, it means that the problem is with my understanding of Hebrews chapter 6. Not with the truth that is plainly taught in a hundred other places in Scripture. Okay? This idea of Scripture interpreting Scripture refines our thinking and guards our hearts and teaches us how to rightly understand the Word of God. And it's a skill and a discipline that you need to learn and you need to practice it all the time. When you come to something in Scripture that's hard to understand... You do not have permission from your Heavenly Father to take the easy road and go, well, that's for the preacher to understand. I I just can't get that. Dig in. Lay claim to the ground and say, Lord, help me understand it because here's the truth. You have the same Holy Spirit living inside of you that the preacher does, assuming he's a saved man. (laughs) Amen? Amen? Same Holy Spirit is informing my thinking and He is informing your thinking. You have the same book that I have. This is the Word of God. It's not anything else on my shelf and nothing else on my shelf dictates over the Word of God. This is what teaches. This is what informs. This is what guides. This is what leads. It is the truth of God's Word Period. Okay? You have access to that. You have the same Spirit who informs. You have the same body of truth that is available to us all. John chapter 17. You say, well, didn't Jesus lose one? Somebody's going to ask the question. So, let's just answer it. John chapter 17 starting at verse 11. I'm no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me. Again, who's going to keep us? Us or God? God. 
Keep through your name those who you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those who you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost, except the son of perdition, that scripture might be fulfilled. What did Jesus just say? What was Judas? Was he a sheep? No. Never was. Despite the fact that he looked like one for three years. He wore the right wool. He bad in the right fashion. Except when he was stealing from the money box, which John tells us was his habit. He looked like a sheep. He smelled like a sheep. He acted like a sheep. The other disciples thought he was a sheep. But Jesus knew who he was and knew who he was from the beginning. And he calls him here, and I stopped reading in John 10, a couple of verses ahead of where I should have read on to. He told the Pharisees in John 10, you are sons of your father, the devil, because they didn't believe in Jesus. The same phrasing he applies here to Judas Iscariot, the son of perdition. It means the son of the devil. And it was appointed before that this should be. And he goes on to tell us, I didn't lose any of them except the one who was never mine to begin with, so he doesn't count. He was the son of perdition, and I'd lost him on purpose so that the scripture might be fulfilled because the scripture said, he who has broken bread with you has lifted up his heel against you. Right? You see, none of this does anything except cement the truth that God is the one who keeps his children. That God is the one who secures our salvation. And that we need to approach the difficult passage here with an understanding that Scripture will form our thinking. Now, Jesus was not alone in testifying that God keeps his promises. Amen? All of Scripture tells us over and over and over again that God keeps His promises. Paul testified of his confidence in the power of Christ to hold him. And he notes that Timothy should hold fast the Word of God to sustain his own faith. Look at me at 2 Timothy chapter 1. These are Paul's final words to his son in the faith, Timothy. And he's telling Timothy how Timothy needs to live his life and what he needs to rest in. It's a powerful book, one I read regularly, and I would encourage you to do the same. Starting in verse 12, Paul says this, For this reason I also suffer these things, nevertheless I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Hold fast the pattern of sound words in which you have heard from me, in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. So Paul gives us some insight into how we can have confidence that we are held in the hand of God. And that is to remember that God gives to us not just a few little cherry-picked verses, but the whole pattern of sound words, the entirety of Scripture, which we are called to hold and to cling fast to, because they through the power of the Spirit, give us the confidence to be able to say, I know who I have believed in. I know that He's able to keep everything that I have committed to Him against the day of redemption. 
I have absolute confidence that my soul is safe in my God no matter what's going on in my world, no matter how upside down things are, no matter how chaotic things get, no matter how alone I feel in the wilderness, no matter how high on top of the world I may feel at any given moment. My faith, my confidence, my trust, my hope must be in my God and in my God alone because it is to Him alone I have entrusted myself. And I know who I have believed in. And I know that above everything else in the world and exclusive to Him beyond anything else in the world, He is able to keep everything that I have entrusted to Him against the day of redemption. And it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter what is going on. Paul also testifies later on that, that God is always true to himself. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. Skip ahead just a little bit in verse 11. He says, this is a faithful saying. If we died with him, we also shall live with him. If we endure, we also shall reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we're faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Right? What's he saying? He's saying, well, if I belong to him, then he's going to keep me. What about that little bit in the middle? If we deny him, he will also deny us. Who would deny Christ? Somebody who doesn't belong to Christ, right? The son of perdition. Somebody who is not a sheep. Somebody outside the fold. It's not somebody who has had their heart changed and belongs to Him by being selected by God. Because, remember, Jesus said, I'm not going to lose any of them. So is anybody who actually belongs to God ever going to actually deny Him? No. It cannot happen. You cannot abandon your faith. You cannot walk away from a genuine faith that has converted you. Because you've been converted by a power outside of you. You didn't choose the faith. It wasn't yours. It's an alien faith given to you by God. Ephesians 2 says that faith is the gift of God. It's not of ourselves that we should boast. It's His. He gave it to us. If you believe, it's because God made you believe. He changed your heart. And in the moment that He changed your heart, the very next thing that changed was your mind. All of a sudden, everything was different, and you have no idea why. Just one minute, you're going along believing that you're the king of the world, and the next minute, God changes your heart, and you go, I'm not the king of the world. I'm, I'm a worm. God, forgive me. The very first words of a newborn heart is, God, forgive me. In one form or another, we cry for mercy. And that's the evidence that God has changed us. That's the evidence that He's done a work in us. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that all of these promises are given to us by God who cannot lie. Go back to Hebrews chapter 6, just a little bit further than where we are this morning. We find these words in verses 17 and 18. He says, Thus, God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise. Who's He making His word known to? The heirs of the promise, that's us. Thus, God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise the immutability of His counsel. In other words, His plans never change. He confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. 
What a powerful and beautiful phrase. We fled for refuge. The writer of Hebrews affirms that the resurrection of Christ is the surest anchor of our promise. Look at uh, Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25. Hebrews 7 verse 25 says it very plainly. He says, Therefore, he, speaking of Christ, is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So it is the resurrection of Christ and his constant abiding intercession, his action as high priest, referencing back to the order of Melchizedek, which we'll get to in a few years. <laughs> this, this is the anchor of our hope. right? We, we just celebrated Easter. And it's not about bunnies and rabbits and eggs. It's about the resurrection of the Son of God. It is about death dying. It's about the truth that in the moment that we close our eyes, we open them gazing upon the face of the beloved. There's power in that and there's promise in that. And there's hope in that. And if you are resting that hope on anything that you have done, you've missed it. There's no hope in you. There's no hope in your work. There's no hope in you making a decision or you doing a work or you belonging to a church or you being baptized or you doing anything. And at the heart of it, all of these people who teach that you can lose your salvation teach it because they think that you can earn it. That you do something to win it. That you do something to influence God. That you do something that makes you acceptable to Him. Beloved, if we take Scripture at its heart, what Scripture teaches us plainly from start to finish is that of your own strength and of your own accord and by anything that you can do, you will never be acceptable to God. Because you are defiled in your very nature. You are defiled in your very core. The psalmist said, In sin, my mother conceived me. In sin, I was brought forth. That does not mean that David believed that his mother was an adulteress. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, I recognize that the taint of original sin has ruined me and ruined my mother, and there is no good that comes out of man, nothing whatsoever, and if there is anything found good in me, it is the working of God apart from me and over me and in that alone. And that forms our understanding of Scripture. You say, well, I know people who say that they believed in God and then they didn't. Well, let me tell you something very simple. There's one thing to believe and another to be made new. There's an intellectual assent that is absolutely riot in this nation because of the fact that we teach people that they can do something to inherit their, their salvation. There are those who will tell you to your face they belong to Christ, but have nothing whatsoever to do with Him. There are those who will tell you to your face that they belong to Him. There are those who will stand in pulpits and tell you they belong to Him and teach you lies, but have nothing whatsoever to do with Him. Look at Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. Starting at verse 10. 
Paul warning Titus says this, There are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them shortly, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and consciences are defiled. They profess to know God. Catch that. They profess to know God. But in works, they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. So he tells us very plainly that there are false converts, and you're going to know them by their works. They're insubordinate. They will not submit to proper authority. They're, they're idle talkers. They're gossips. They're greedy. They are defiled in their nature, defiled in their being. They are liars and deceivers. They subvert whole households with false teaching. And everything that they do carries with it the taint of sin, the taint of ruin, the taint of fallenness. But they will tell you to your face, I believe in Jesus. I'm a follower of Christ. I'm in church every Sunday. I'm the pastor. Maybe they are. But they don't know him because they have not been made new by him. And they are not submissive unto him as Christ and God. The Jesus that they say they follow is a Jesus of their own imagination. It's a Jesus created out of their own working, out of their own will. The difference is in the question of their purity. You say, well, wait a minute. You said we can never be pure enough for God. I did. So how is it that we are made pure? By the blood of Christ, right? The blood of Christ washes us from our sins and removes all defilement and all stain and all taint. So having been washed in the blood of Christ, here's a memo to you, saints. You are pure. You are clean. You are made new. You have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And when God looks at you, He sees His perfect Son. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. This is substitutionary atonement at its heart and core. This is the truth that God has actually exchanged your filth for Jesus' righteousness and Jesus' righteousness for your defilement. He has made this exchange and He counts you as clean. He doesn't pretend you're clean. You are clean. And so Paul says, to the pure, all things are pure. Right? So how you approach the Scripture, when you approach it saying, you know what, this is the very Word of God. It is sufficient. It is complete. It is able to save me. It is able to teach me the truth. It is able to give me everything that I need. It is very God of very God's Word to me. And it's pure. And it's true. 
Therefore, I have to believe it in its entirety, which means that since God doesn't lie and God doesn't change his mind and God is not capable of error, then if there's a problem with my understanding of Scripture, guess where the problem lies? With me, right? It's shocking how often that's true in all of my life. Where there's a problem, it's me. (laughs) And I'm okay with that. It simplifies things. I just know right away. There's a problem. Okay, I'm the problem. How do we fix it? How do I solve this, right? That's the heart of it. God says, I have provided everything you need. I am your answer. I am your solution. Does the condition of your soul cause your intake of Scripture to resonate as true and pure and right? Or does the condition of your soul cause you to approach Scripture with an antagonistic attitude which says, that can't be right? Right? Right away, as soon as somebody starts to unpack Scripture and they want to tell you, yeah, well, we can't really trust the Bible because it's been translated by men and, and these things have gone on and there's problems with this and Paul was, was a misogynistic idiot who didn't understand anything and it was all invented by a bunch of Jewish guys that hated women. When, when you hear that stuff, right away you know that the person who's speaking to you is not talking to you about the Scripture, but talking to you about the condition of their own soul. Okay? They're telling you up front without even understanding what they're telling you that they are not saved. That they do not know the God who they profess to know. That they are not obedient to Scripture. That they are not the sheep of Christ. And that they are not to be trusted or listened to from them. Turn away. Okay? When somebody starts off explaining to you why the Scripture cannot be trusted, leave quickly. Just leave. I don't care if they're your child, or your parent, or your brother, or your best friend. Leave. They are deceiving, and they are deceivers. And if they are not a son of perdition, they are not yet redeemed in real time. Now, that's a whole different conversation, which I'm not going to really delve into right now. By their fruits, you will know them right now. Okay? Act accordingly. Do not give time and attention to false teachers. So our way to resolve apparent difficulties and conflicts in Scripture is not to say that the Scripture is untrustworthy, but that I have a problem with my mind and how I can understand things, and I need the grace of God, and I need clarity from the rest of Scripture informing my thinking so that I might understand what is true instead of just presuming that I am right. Okay? This is how we approach all of our dilemmas with Scripture. So let's think for a moment about why the writer of Hebrews might have used such very strong language to the, to the people to whom he was writing this letter. Why he might have written it in such a way under the auspices and the authority and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to say this thing, which now is such a problem for us to understand? I think it's a fair question. Well, 
let me ask you this. Does God do things apart from the use of means as a normal role? Maybe the question's not clear. Let me put it this way. Do miraculous interventions happen every day all the time? Not really, right? That's why we call them miracles, right? They stand out because they stand out, right? God usually is pleased to accomplish his work through what is called the use of means. In other words, if he wants somebody to be saved, he's going to have somebody in their life come to them with the preaching of the gospel, the teaching of the word of God, because the scripture promises us that they will be made alive as they hear the word. Right? That the word of God does not return void. Romans chapter 10 reminds us that it is the proclamation of the gospel which calls the dead to life. It is the truth that God has ordained the foolishness of preaching to be the thing which makes those who are undead become, or those who are dead become alive. Okay? So, the normal use of means is the manner in which God does his work. Stretch just a little bit with me. Do you think that could extend to how he preserves his children? Would he use means to preserve his children sometimes? Sure he would, right? So, mothers in the room, riddle me this. Next week is Mother's Day. Y'all were good mothers. When your children were doing something that was dangerous, did you say, you know, if you do that, you're going to hurt yourself? Yeah, all the time, right? So you could have put it on a tape recorder and just run around, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, because you want to caution them against hurting themselves by doing something foolish. Right? Is it possible, is it conceivable that God would give us this warning about the dire consequences of abandoning the faith? Even though he knows he's going to keep us, But as a part of his means of preserving us, he gives us warnings to say, don't go away, because if I were to let you go, you could never come back. In other words, don't push it, children. It's dangerous out there. I've stood at the edge of the Grand Canyon. I've stood with my toes literally dangling like this over the edge. I know, my wife's giving me the eyeball. You did what? (laughs) I've got a picture. It's awesome. At no point in that experience was I thinking to myself, I wonder if I'll float if I step off. Right? At at no point did I think to myself, hmm, I wonder if I can fly. I could fall, but it wouldn't be very stylish. (laughs) All the Toy Story fans in the room didn't even chuckle. (laughs) The the, the caution inherent in life and experience and yes, warnings helped me understand what was going on. Right? For, For all of us, the warnings that God gives us, they're a part of what helps us recognize how desperately we need to stay close to Him. Because truthfully, let me ask you this question. 
Are you always as attendant upon the scripture as you ought to be? Are you always as faithful to seek his face as you should be? Do you not think there's a place in your life for warnings? Cautionary statements wherein God says, Be aware. The only thing that's apart from me is death and darkness and ruin. Right? Don't we need that? So why is this so hard for us to get our head around the fact that God says, you know, if you could fall away, you could never come back. If I let you go, there's nobody else. Is that not consistent with the whole of Scripture? If I let you go, there's nobody else to save you. And there's also the fact that sometimes we want to remind people just how dependent upon us they might be. You know, your kids get a little sassy. Tell them, well, you know, man, it won't work, he won't eat. Or you tell them, you know, if I didn't put food in that refrigerator, there wouldn't be anything here for you, so have a little respect. Right? Occasionally, when your children are teenagers, you might have had to push that button a little bit. But do you understand that in the same context, God could be reminding us of that truth? Because there is nothing else that will hold us. There is nothing else that can hold us. There is nothing else that can make us his own. And the response of a living heart that sees the world aright should be gratitude that he has not let us go and that he has, excuse me, that he has chosen to save us. Because there, there should be nothing of personal pride or arrogance left in us when we rightly understand what it is to belong to him. There's no room for it. It's his work, and it's his will, and it's his grace. And in the end, we need to recognize that with that truth, there is a responsibility in us for growth. Okay? Let's come back to the larger passage. Okay? We're, we're going to drill down into the finer minutiae and the greater details in the coming weeks. But I, I just want to spend some time in the larger passage. So let's just think about it very, very briefly here. What is the writer of Hebrews giving them grief about from chapter 5 through chapter 6? They're not growing, right? You guys should be teachers by now. Right? Churches are supposed to grow. They're supposed to grow up so that they can grow up and send. Not so that they can grow up and get fat. Right? They're not supposed to grow up and, and, and fill their building so much that they go, huh, let's build a bigger one. No, when they grow up to the point where they can't fit it in anymore, they should think about, you know what? There, there's 23 people coming to this church from 40 miles away. Maybe we should go plant a church 40 miles away. Wouldn't that be exciting? We'll grieve to lose people, but wouldn't it be exciting to actually send somebody out to plant a church so that the gospel can be proclaimed in a place where it is so barren right now that somebody has to drive 40 miles to get to church? Wouldn't that be cool? I don't think that we're supposed to build bigger buildings. I think we're supposed to be faithful to grow up and go out 
to grow up and do the, the work of the gospel, to do the things we're supposed to do. We are supposed to grow in grace. Well, part of the responsibility of growing up as a church and growing in grace is producing men who can lead a church. Right? Men who will come alongside and say, you know what, I'm called to, to grow in grace and to lead my family and to, and to maybe teach and to maybe help with the work of the church and to do the things that will qualify me to be a leader in a body. And if I'm not called to go, then be a leader in this body. Right? That, that's our calling. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to grow in grace. We're supposed to grow in knowledge. You should know more about the Scripture today than you did yesterday. You should know more about God today than you did last week. You should grow in knowledge. You should grow in understanding. You should grow in discernment so that as you come across difficult passages, you know the right course of action to go. And yes, you can ask for help. We, we have opportunities for that. It's one of the things we do on Sunday nights when we have a theological discussion fellowship is I want you to bring in the questions, the things that you've been looking at, the things you're not understanding, so we can look at them together. Right? But part of that whole process is training. I don't just want to be the answer man. Because if I'm your answer man, you're in trouble. <laughs> right? I don't want to be the answer man. But I want to train you so that you can come to the Scripture so that you can then go on and train others. Because ultimately, if the gospel is going to have an impact in this community and in our surrounding communities, it's going to have an impact not because I could do it all, because I know I can't. Look at the list of all the projects on my plate that are falling off. My wives are just gone. Her, her, her whole list is just gone. Right? Look at that, because I can't do it all myself. I try, but I fail. And I can't do everything in the work of the church by myself. And it's an unreasonable expectation for a church to assume that the job of the pastor is to be the church. It's not. The job of the pastor is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry according to Scripture. Not according to me, but according to Scripture. My job is to train you, to teach you, to equip you, and then to send you. That's my job. We're supposed to grow up so that we can. We're supposed to grow up so that we are capable of it. So that we're able to fulfill it. And we are supposed to grow in purity. And we are supposed to grow in holiness. Because nothing is more distasteful than somebody who is wrestling with open, horrible sin telling you about how you need Jesus. It just tastes awful in the mouth. And it turns more people off God than it will ever turn on. Being honest about your struggles is one thing. But not engaging with your struggles to try and have victory over them, that is not acceptable. That is not acceptable to God, and it ought not to be acceptable to the body that calls you a member. Okay? We need to be faithful to grow in purity and grow in holiness. Growth is both a comfort and an assurance. It is a comfort because you know that if you're growing, it's not because you've been holding on to God, but because He's been holding on to you. Amen? And it's an assurance that you actually are His. Remember those dead trees I was talking about earlier? What is the evidence of life? Growth and change. Right? 
So when you look at a dead tree, you know it's dead because it has no life in it. But when you look at a living tree, you know that what you're seeing is the evidence of life. So when you look at your life and you see growth and change, guess what that shows you? Life, right? It shows you life. It shows you that you're His. It shows you that you're found in Christ. And in the end, it becomes a source of hope and encouragement to you to stay the course. One of the things that I love about hiking is reaching halfway up or more and looking back and going, man, look how far we've come. Right? It's cool. There's something encouraging about that. There's something just neat about having just, you look back over the course of where you've been and you go, look how high we've climbed or how deep we've walked, right? He's like, well, we came from up there. Ooh, and we got to go back up there. <laughs> that was the hard part, right? But in the end, we need to recognize the truth that you're growing should be an encouragement to you. And sometimes I just want to, I'm a coward. And there, there are times where I talk to people one-on-one and they're telling me how discouraged they are with life and how discouraged they are with everything that's going on. I just want to shake them and go, look, the issue is that you're not growing in grace. You need God to have a part in your life. You need to be demonstrably growing. There needs to be change in you. I get very excited when I see somebody come into the church and all of a sudden they start growing by leaps and bounds. <laughs> Jared is such an encouragement to me. I see him. I see him hungering after the Word. I see him growing in grace. Adam, same thing, man. Your questions, your, the thoughts, the things that you're asking. It's evidence. It's powerful. It's glorious. I love it. For all of us, that evidence should be present. We should be different than we were. We should be changed. And that never stops. It never stops. As long as you have life, you should grow. As long as you are here, you should be growing in grace. You should be changing to be more like Christ. Because in the end, the evidence matters. Right? The writer of Hebrews, he's just laying it out for him. Look, this is the thing. And I'm looking at these people and I'm seeing them and I'm seeing that there's no evidence of Christ in them. Because what he says, let's look at this passage again really quickly. And this is where we're going to pick it up next week. So I'm just going to lay the ground and then we're going to go. It's impossible, verse 4, for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Right? Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say that it's impossible for somebody who's been justified. It's impossible for somebody who's been made new in Christ. He doesn't say it's impossible for somebody who's been forgiven, who's been sanctified, who's been growing in grace. He's talking about somebody who's been enlightened. It's, a, it's an intellectual word. It means somebody who, who may have had some assent to the things of the gospel. They've been challenged a little bit mentally. They, they've engaged the brain a little bit, but nothing's changed in their heart. The silence about what's missing in them is incredibly loud. But then he goes on later on, and he's talking to the, to the people to whom he's written the letter, and the evidence is louder. He gives them this promise. He says, I am confident of better things concerning you. Right? What drives that confidence? 
The evidence of a life. The evidence of the fact that their lives are demonstrably different because Christ is present in them. Beloved, look, if you're not growing, maybe you're in the wilderness. Okay? Sometimes trees look dead. I don't just run out and cut down the first tree when it doesn't put on leaves. I wait a year or two. Or I find somebody else who has dead trees I can cut down on their ground, so I save mine for later. But that's a whole different conversation. (laughs) You don't just rush out and cut it down because it might just be having a hard year. They do come back. Maybe you're in the wilderness. If you're looking at your life and you're saying, I don't see any evidence, I don't see any growth, I don't see any presence of God in me right now, maybe you're just in the wilderness. But maybe you're not. And you owe it to yourself to ask the question, has there ever been evidence? Has there ever been the mark of Christ on my life? I'm not just talking about the things that I could do superficially by making up my mind and giving it the old college try. I'm talking about the real evidence of a genuine conversion. Has there ever been anything in me that's that's showing that I've been made new? And if the answer to that question is no, then you know the direction you should go. You should cry out to God for mercy and forgiveness. Now the danger that the writer of Hebrews is pointing out is that sometimes the person who thinks that they've been religious all their life and they've, they've, they've been in church and they've done religious things and they've walked the walk and they've, they've done all the things right, but they never were changed. Statistically, those people are the hardest ones to reach with the gospel because they know all the answers. They've got it. Give me a town full of pagans over a town full of religious people any day of the week. Right? I know that sounds strange. But... The gospel is going to gain more traction among the pagans than it ever will among the religious dead. Who was it who had a problem with Jesus? <laughs> the Pharisees, right? The ultra-religious of all the people in Israel. They were the only ones that had a problem with him. And they were the only ones that he looked at and said, you're of your father the devil. For us, If you look at your life and you say to yourself, there's never been anything of Christ in me in real. There's never been any evidence. There's never been any truth. Then I would urge you with all that I have in me to run to the cross and cry for mercy. Because there is nothing else. There is nothing you can do except to recognize your sin and ask for mercy. If you look at your life and you say, I'm I'm not walking in grace right now. I was. I know I'm saved. I know I belong to Him. The evidence of Christ has been in me, but I'm in the wilderness right now. Here's what I have to say to you. Run to the cross and ask for mercy. (laughs) Because the answer is the same. It's always repentance. It's always the cry for mercy. Because we need mercy all day, every day. We live on it. It's our stock in trade. We need mercy. The good news for us and the good news for all mankind is that God is a God of abundant mercy. That this is the day of salvation. And, And whatever your story, 
I don't need to know it. You need to do business with your God. And the great news about that is that you can do that. You can come to Him because Christ is risen. And when you come to Him in His power and His strength and His grace, you can know that when He takes hold of you, you will never be lost because He never loses His own. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace in this day. I pray that you would open wide the eyes of our heart and give to us what we need from your hand. God, for some of us, we need immediate repentance for sins that we've been hiding. For some of us, we need to be saved. For some, in the sound of my voice, even right now, God, they are dealing with things that I cannot comprehend. I ask that you will pour out your grace over all of them. And I pray, God, that you will cause them to cry out to Christ for the mercy that is only found in him. God, I pray that for all of us. Make us dependent upon you in every way. Provide our need according to your grace. And let us walk in the truth that Christ is exactly who he said he is. Hold us, Father, for nothing else can be relied on. And we ask it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.